on the day of the bombing, when Timothy McVeigh was driving away from the attack, he carried with him an envelope with several sheets of paper in it. Among those sheets were pages copied out of the Turner Diaries. It had highlighted sections that talked about the purpose of terrorism. It was something that he wanted people to see to understand why he had done what he did. My name is J.M. Berger. I study extremism with a special focus on propaganda, and I do that as a fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague. The Turner Diaries is a racist dystopian novel that has become an incredibly powerful piece of propaganda for white nationalist movements around the world. It's become perhaps the most influential work of white nationalist propaganda since the Nazis. It was written in the 1970s, and it describes a world where blacks and, and Jews have taken over and are oppressing white people, and the white people rise up to correct that. Why didn't we rise up three years ago when they started taking our guns away? Why didn't we rise up in righteous fury and drag these arrogant aliens into the streets and cut their throats then? The author of the Turner Diaries, William Pierce, was a, a rocket scientist. He, he was a physicist, and he slowly became obsessed with issues of race. Around the time of the Civil Rights Movement, he was pro-segregationist. He felt that the media treated segregationists unfairly, so he began to write, first for the American Nazi Party, and then later breaking away and, and forming his own organization, the National Alliance. In 1978, it was published as a book. National Alliance self-published it. They would distribute it at gun shows. They would distribute it at rallies and meetings, and you could order it through the mail originally. If one asked, what, what was the purpose of the Turner Diaries? Uh, it was to uh, provide uh, a fictional medium for certain ideas that I think are very important. The Turner Diaries has a focus on kind of instructions. Take these steps, do these things. In the early days, the book's influence was inspiring people to take part in very organized activities. The book constantly reproaches people who do not act on behalf of the white race. It focuses a lot on explaining the reasons for terrorism how you pick your targets and what you should expect when you carry out a terrorist attack. What the Turner Diaries really is is a template for action and a call to take action. There are at least 200 murders, including those people murdered in the Oklahoma City bombing, that were committed by people who were influenced by the Turner Diaries in some way meaning there was clear documentation they'd read it. In most of these cases, there were indications that not only had they read it, but that it influenced their actions. In the Turner Diaries, there is an organization known as The Order. It is a secretive group that is behind the wider insurgency. 
that concept in particular really resonated with a lot of the readers of the book. And what we saw in the 1980s was a group led by a guy named Bob Matthews, who's a white nationalist from the West Coast. And he literally adopted the Turner Diaries as the playbook for the revolution. So he called his group the Order. He made everybody who joined it read the book. He emulated what happened in the books. They robbed banks in order to fund the white nationalist insurgency around the country, and they murdered people in order to try and provoke a government crackdown in a way that the characters in the book do. I'd rather stand up here and talk to 100 people who hate us than 1,000 who don't care. Hey, why don't you Jews get the heck out of here? I didn't come all the way down here to hear you. Go over there! William Pierce greatly admired Bob Matthews. He called Matthews a lion. He thought he was an incredible specimen of masculinity, I think is the word he used. Bob Matthews was a good man who um, was convinced that he had to take action against the people uh, who are destroying America, the people that um, pose a threat to the future of the white race worldwide. William Pierce was much more nervous about endorsing Timothy McVeigh than he had been about Bob Matthews. Timothy McVeigh, who was the ringleader and the mastermind of the Oklahoma City bombing, was obsessed with the Turner Diaries. He had a long history of carrying it around. When he was in the army, he would give it to people to read. Later, he sold them at gun shows. The bomb that he eventually built, along with Terry Nichols, was extremely similar to a bomb that is described in the Turner Diaries. But our original plan for the bomb called for it to be essentially unconfined and to be able to punch through two levels of reinforced concrete flooring. The Oklahoma City bombing was the vast majority of the deaths associated with the book. For him, vicariously building that bomb would have been for him like living out the pages of this story in a way that would have a very profound emotional impact. William Pierce was much more cautious when he talked about McVeigh because McVeigh's crime was more controversial even among anti-government extremists and white nationalists. He suggested that he would not support the actual method that McVeigh used. But at the same time, he thought McVeigh had the right ideas and was doing something about them. If one is looking for a motive for the Oklahoma City bombing, I don't think uh, one should be examining uh, various uh, politically incorrect novels written more than 20 years ago. The Turner Diaries has survived for a lot of reasons. The first one is its lack of ideological groundings. The book is careful not to spell out what its ideology is. It refers to the fact that there is an ideology behind the order, but it doesn't explain what that ideology is. In that way, Turner Diaries is kind of a Rorschach test. You can come to it with whatever beliefs you have and see it as a blueprint for action that doesn't require you to have a specific kind of white supremacist or white nationalist belief. That was really the beginning of a, a trend in which white nationalist ideology was really hollowed out. They just know they hate everybody. 
I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. The military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been nine years. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Nick, joined tonight by Adam and Hans. How are you doing? Not too bad. Happy Halloween. Oh, excuse me. Happy Valentine's. I, I mix holidays up. Adam, will you be my Valentine? Uh, do I get something for once from the other person? Sure. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds like a good deal. Uh, isn't reciprocity nice? You know yeah. who maybe had several Valentines? Uh, the subject of our show tonight. I think he had a few over the course of his life. Isn't that right? He had a few uh, Valentines in the mail. He had five. five. Yeah, he had a few, a few foreign ones. You know, it, it was uh, quite quite an interesting life he led. He was a hungry man. Yes, several hungry Hungarians, man. but yeah, yeah. Well, <sighs> let's get into it. We're talking today about the infamous novel of uh, armed struggle and racial insertion the turner diaries so this could be one of those shows where you know you familiarize yourself with the line uh, as i did years ago you hope uh you hope you have a good outline of it because uh the obligatory disclaimer is that we at the myth of the 20th century podcast are not here to advocate for any specific acts of uh, violence against the system, any criminal actions, we cannot uh, endorse because of the nature of the situation. And uh, we want this to be an education program that is for education and entertainment purposes only. Now, with that being said, let's talk about it. Well, what's interesting is that it's actually <clears throat> recently so, removed from uh, from Amazon think about a few weeks ago or almost a month ago um they uh, they it was specifically cited as uh the cause for the january 6th uh, attack on the capitol apparently they uh, la Times yeah i wrote a very long piece arguing that it was the inspiration for it which is uh, pretty bizarre, given that yep. <laughs> most of, most of the people there were wearing well, Q paraphernalia. Well, they did the, not, uh, the same yeah. thing when uh, the government asset Timothy McVeigh, in collaboration with foreign intelligence services as well as the FBI and the SPLC, committed the bombing of the Oklahoma City building. It was also attributed to the work of William Luther Pierce. 
Yeah, it's funny. Relatiously, uh, <clears throat> then as r- it is r- now, Rules for Radicals is still on sale. You can pick that up at Amazon. You know, so is the Anarchist Cookbook, which hasn't been banned suspiciously enough. Like you can still get that book. Um, you can't get the Turner Diaries though, which is very odd. Apparently, yeah, I, I read something that it was uh, they were they were whining about how works of racialist uh, fiction or just racialist works in general are starting to command a premium on the used market, which uh, they they're apparently paying a lot of attention to. So it's an ever it's evergreen material though, and that's what I'd like to talk about today. I'd like to I'd like to do my best to give a serious review and treatment of the book. Because it is something that system media whines about and always pulls up as a some you know motivating force behind whatever they want to blame it on. Um, and uh, let's let's talk about what it actually is, or rather, let's first talk about what it isn't. Uh, let's get the let's get the criticisms out of the way first. So, what Turner Diaries is not is. A work of great literature it's not it's not a great novel no one's going to pretend it is in fact william luther pierce's other book hunter is generally regarded as a superior book by people who read these things and by william pierce himself and also what it is not is some kind of practical revolutionary blueprint however there are aspects of it that are definitely relevant to that kind of thinking as to what 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 in here can be applied in a serious way to what's actually going on. So what I what I think is valuable valuable about the Turner Diaries is you, it's best treated as basically a revolutionary thought experiment. And he asks some very serious questions, and he provides answers to it. Namely, he asks, "What what would it take? What would victory take?" What would it demand of us? How far are you willing to go to secure a future? That is, to prevent the earth ball from rotating in the meaningless darkness devoid of all higher life. It is a a truly revolutionary book. And I don't mean that because it depicts a terror campaign against the system, you know, the bombing of federal buildings, the assassinations of collaborators, race traitors, etc., uh, but it's revolutionary because it, it cuts right to the heart of the problem. It's truly radical. And in that sense, it uh, nails it. Namely, he identifies the culprit. The culprit, of course, being the material complacency, which is at the root of our submission to the system. And to William Luther Pierce's credit, he had the moral courage to see through the bullshit, to see through the you know, blabbering excuses of the compromisers, or rather the conservatives, And to seriously ask the question and provide an answer to it. And in that sense, I I find it is very stimulating to the imagination to read it. And it's sort of, um, it it does a lot for you in terms of when, because what you can see in it is the mind of, of a better man. I mean, the, the, for all the prattling American dissident movement has never produced a man of the caliber of William Luther Pierce. In fact, they're rehashing the same mistakes that people like Pierce. I mean, there there were some. I mean, he grew. Keep in mind, like Pierce was born in 1933, right? In fact, he was born shortly after Adolf Hitler took power in Germany, and he saw this whole thing play out from a time that was very different in America. 
the book that we're talking about was written in the late 70s, and it was set in the 1990s. And there's a lot in it that's very prophetic. And although its predictive qualities are on a slightly different timetable than we're facing, I mean, this is all coming in the 1990s. Uh, it is pretty on the nose as to where the ultimate fate of the system was headed. And we're seeing a lot of what was predicted in, in his novel. I mean, and we're going to be seeing more in the future, namely the total consolidation of the system power, more extreme forms of humiliation, torture, depravity, and the ultimate revolutionary situation where you reach a point where people are faced, they have to look around them and they have to seriously look inside themselves and ask, well, what does it take? I mean, at what point? When your wives and children are being raped in front of you, at what point do you choose to die as a white man rather than live as a slave? And that's what the book is about. Yeah, um, I, I'll agree with you. It's not a very good book. Um, it's, <laughs> it's not subtle. And um, it's it's not even that interesting. And in fact, it, it's kind of written in a very um, detached way. Personally, I, you know, I look at it like it was written in, a, in, in an era for Pierce where the U.S. was in steep decline. I mean, if you, if you rewind your mentality back to the late 70s, uh, what's going on? You have the first modern political implosion of, uh, of a sitting president, Richard Nixon. You have uh, several foreign policy collapses. You have um, a, a massive sprawling economic crisis uh, that's multifaceted. You have an inflation crisis, currency crisis. You have a crisis of fuel, crisis of credit. Um, pretty much everything was going wrong. Culturally, the United States was um, also in deep decline. You see the beginnings of the security state, the psychological security state, state being formed. You have uh, the creation of um, the Behavioral Sciences Unit and the FBI. You have the expansion of the FBI after um, Hoover's death. You know, you really have uh, the CIA in full swing, knocking over countries left and right. You know, the world just is in total chaos. Um, and uh, I think in the UK, you know, you have looming winter of discontent and you have just uh, multitudes of problems the world over. And communism seems triumphant or more triumphant. Um, and everything that could have gone wrong with America appears to be going um, well, wrong. don't don't forget Vietnam. I mean, Nixon. Well, yeah, that's, had that's or part of just it, about withdrawn. Of, yeah, the triumphance of communism is particularly important there, and um, and so if you're in that cultural milieu, you can see why a more um, uh, destitute vision of the future would be predominant, uh, and a more revolutionary future might be predominant. Um, this is also the era of uh, global revolutionary terrorism. You have terrorism in the Middle East. You have revolutionary movements in the Middle East. You have uh, Iran. You have Ireland. 
you have pretty much all of Latin America. You have yeah. This uh, is when the hijackings problems. became a thing. Yeah, and airport security started being problems in, ramped up. Enduring problems in in Italy. You have enduring problems in in, in inside the Soviet Union. Enduring problems in post-colonial Africa and Rhodesia and South Africa, Mozambique. Um, it was a chaotic world, and um, and not only that, but you know, United States was falling apart. I mean, for a guy who grew up in yes, yeah, the yeah. the triumph of uh, the Second World War and the fifties and early part of the sixties, as he matured and began his professional career, where he was a physicist, I believe, at Oregon State. Uh, he he saw very quickly the radicalization going on in the campuses, and he very astutely identified who was leading the charge. And it was people like Saul Alinsky who were th- saying and writing things about uh, how to create a socialist state. Number one, healthcare control healthcare. Number two, increase the poverty level, increase the debt level, gun control, welfare, education, religion, remove belief in God, class warfare. All of those things were happening, and they were being pushed by people like Alinsky. And the radicalization on the campus, in particular. Was I think something he saw, and as a physicist, a, a guy who lives and breathes truth and reality, and you have these hyper-emotional, very irrational people uh, literally ripping their clothes off, covering themselves in blood, doing all these really bizarre rituals, it must have been incredibly jarring for him. And also to see the country go through exactly these domestic revolutions with organizations like the students for a democratic society literally bombing the country uh, a thousand times over and yeah we you know we talked about that on days of rage i mean this is a whole aspect of history that um has been very well covered up but if you lived through it at the time you would have been processing it and understanding it and so uh, you know what the that, difference between between then and now is though the difference is that you still had white men born in America who weren't fucking pussies. Okay. And that's what Pierce represents. And he was thrown out of the John Birch society along with people like Revelo P. Oliver because they named the fucking kike. Right. That's what happened. You have these people who, and now these days you have people like Alex Jones trying to do the same routine. They're trying to, you know, make up some fantastical boogeyman nonsense about foreign enemies that have nothing to do with the enemy that are inside the gates and right at home. And I didn't say it was a bad book. I said it was a bad novel. I think it's a good book, and at least insofar as it's a place that you can find distilled form of William, William Luther Pierce's thought. And you can find a lot of very good observations that hold true today. And you can also have the tragic realization that in a certain sense, we were better off, or at least the people, the dissidents who were aware of the situation were of a higher caliber back then, because this was all known stuff. We're not, this is kind of the difficult part about doing this program and why it is I personally like to focus on 20th century history is because this is where it all happened. You know, we we're not really able to bring too much new to the table. And so far as pretty much everything that can be said about what has taken place over the past century has been said, we can only draw people's attention to it. And Turner diaries is of course infamous and often called out by our enemies and, you know, 
things are blamed on it or it's some some kind of like uh looming specter or something i mean the reality is yes it's as far as his depiction of the actual events that take place uh when it comes to white resistance there's aspects of it that are a bit unrealistic and we can discuss that I mean, mainly there are a lot of big leaps really unrealistic <laughs> it's kind of, it's like um it's great uh, uh it's great at what it's trying to do i mean i guess it's it's trying to you know get you amped up um but it, it it's it is incredibly unreal there are whole parts of it where um the the narrator or like it, it it's a little confusing there's the narrator and then there's the actual diaries themselves which are then being kind of narrated by someone else at the end um where everyone is just like way too level headed with what's going on and you have this, I think, uh, I, don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but you have this, uh, this kind of mentality throughout where it's, it's almost as if it's not meant to be a serious thought piece on, on anything. It's more meant to get you in some kind of revolutionary mindset. And if you look at some of the um, absolutely insane uh ramblings of like and i'm not saying pierce is in, is insanely rambling here but if you look at the insane ramblings of the early bolshevik movement um jonathan bowden used to talk about this if you look at the early writings of leon trotsky it's it's just looney tunes it's absolute insanity um and but it but it gets you fired up if you are um, if you are sympathetic to that realm of thought, then it's just it's a goldmine of getting you in this mentality. Yeah, there's a lot of time to find. There's some and, good and, points and a there. Lot the you know, IRA, the, a lot of the IRA, a lot of the IRA stuff was similar, and so I could see what Pierce is trying to do. Like he's trying to, he's trying to say, well, how do I create this kind of revolutionary literature for my worldview? which is a, an interesting thought experiment. How would you do it? Um, and so maybe it's not meant to yes, be realistic. It, 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 yeah, I can say a few things to this. I'd say there is a, it is a not, it is not an unfair comparison to what in the novel is described as the organization to Leninism, uh, the, yeah. the nature of the organization has an almost Leninist quality. I mean, it, it definitely it. feels. Uh, and I like, will remind people that the Bolsheviks were successful. Right. Okay. It definitely feels and like a. The, a I think that the most unrealistic. It, it, it is, in a certain sense, it is a inversion of the Bolshevik revolution. Yeah. Uh, that, that, is a, that is a fair description of, of the scenario he puts forward. Namely, that following the overthrow of the established formal regime, what you have following that is a series of liquidations and reprisals of all counter-revolutionary elements. That is correct. Yes, that is, uh, well, that is the scenario the he puts forward. As, as most revolutionary movements in 20th century, I mean, you know, when we talked about the Spanish Civil War, um, it followed a very similar path where... Lots of people. Once the once the 
um, count both the revolution and the counter-revolution was complete within the revolution of that counter-revolution led by Franco. Lots of people who then had worked with Franco either begrudgingly or uh, happily during the war were then looking for their own slice of the pie or they were looking for their own power. And there were a lot of reprisals, there were lots of purges. And throughout the 20th century, you get this impression. And I think by the late 70s, he, you know, Pierce has had enough time to really see this play out on multiple continents in very different cultures. You see the same pattern work. Whether, you know, especially if the revolution, whatever it is, is successful, what you get is that same playbook of there's reprisals, there's counter-revolutions, there's purges, and there's, you know, there's a great deal of sacrifice, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, you know, heroism, there's also a lot of insanity, there's a lot of unnecessary bloodshed that happens, a lot of things that could have been handled better, and, you know. If it kind of it feels honestly like he's just sort of looking at how everything played out in post-colonial Africa, Spain, Soviet Union, uh, predominantly, maybe Italy and places like that as well, and saying it would basically work out the same way here. And there's a there's a there's one bit where um Towards the end of the Soviet Union, and then after the Soviet Union had kind of collapsed and had uh, been reformulated into modern Russia, there was a lot more openness surrounding the early days of it. And ironically, if you follow the timeline of the Turner Diaries, it has that same element too, where after the revolutionary struggle period is over and like a hundred years later, whatever when this like when the end takes place um before they change like the calendar uh signif- signification I, um the b n e whatever it is uh, uh basically the new they, era they, yeah 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 they, they then they before decide, the new era right they decide to start releasing the old like uh revolutionary literature and the old first hand accounts of how it all went down like Within the Soviet Union, um, you know, much of the early accounts of the Bolshevik Revolution were considered forbidden material. They were banned. There was there was lots of material and lots of factual evidence surrounding mm-hmm. the Bolshevik yeah. Revolution that, an were, that observation. were not allowed to be discussed or were not published until its end or until it had fallen. And I, you kind of see that same element. And you're not really it's not really clear what the world is supposed to look like. 100 years after this revolution takes place you don't really get oh it's clear it's a white world uh jerusalem is a smoking nuclear wasteland so is the far east the dark continent of africa is depopulated of the negroid race which is something that appears like a fantasy to the children who are born in the new in the new order that they're not aware of negroes because they don't exist anymore they've been wiped out the jew has been wiped out much of the Asiatic continent has been exterminated. There may be some obscure minorities crawling around in what I believe is called the Eastern Wastes. I mean, it's, it's definitely extreme, okay? There's no getting around that. And that's also the point. And, and I want to back up a little 
little bit. Uh, Hans has made some good points, and I would summarize what he would say, and at least my agreement with what he said, is that it's very much a work of the Cold War. In fact, a lot of white nationalism, as it's known, is a very much a Cold War phenomenon. And one of the greater ironies, I think, of the book is that the events that are taking place take place around the time. Keep in mind, this was written in the late 70s. So the events that were taking place that he's projecting into the future actually take place when the Soviet Union collapsed in real life in 1991. Okay. So that's that's kind of an interesting thing because one one of the events that happens in the book is that the uh, the uh, revolt against the system, the the organization, the, those revolting in armed struggle against the system, they provoke a nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union as kind of their last gambit. And we can get into some of the plot points of the book. That's what I'd like to back up and get back to because. So I think what we were doing there is giving some of our impressions and overall thoughts on it. And I'd like to narrow it down a little bit. So uh, as to the writing style itself, you have to keep in mind that the way this book was written, it wasn't written as a book. It was written as basically installments in a racial propaganda newsletter uh, that Pierce was putting out on the streets of Washington, D.C., by the way. (laughs) Uh, it's just just incredible to think about is handing these out um, in D.C. in the 70s. But the thing is that Negroes don't read. So that's not really a big issue. He apparently wasn't harassed too much for it because of where he was doing it. But um, let's let's get into the plot a little bit and just just get some of the highlights, because there's some interesting there's some interesting things that gives us a perspective back in time as to what people might have imagined the, the future would look like. And some of the things were very correct, and some of the things are uh, maybe history has taken a slightly different course. So w- let's start with what provokes the confrontation and why armed struggle begins on the North American continent. It's the product of a final sort of gun raid that's taking place like the the system has done uh, taken a lot of measures already towards the disarmament of the american people and it's gotten to the point where now even possession of ammunition is illegal etc and you have basically colored gangs that are deputized on behalf of the system to go around and uh, shake down any potentially non-compliant whites and this is basically the final humiliation and people have, uh, it's, I guess, the uh, proverbial breaking point, right? And people, people start to lose it. And one of the things that is, of course, underdeveloped, and I think deliberately so, is the origin of the, you know, eponymous organization. It's never really explained. Certainly no depictions are given of what the leadership looks like. Uh, because he's trying to askew the notion of like a basically a charismatic leader. What you have is, and this is, in my opinion, the most fanciful thing in the in the novel, namely that you have in America a truly disciplined and organized revolutionary cadre. That's that's the part that is just is the is the most fanciful. Yeah, it's that's. <laughs> Would you guys like to comment on how this opens? That's 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 um, it's ridiculous. He knows this too, by the way. Yeah, this isn't yeah. a, like it. It wasn't it. Yeah. We well, have to uh, look at 
I, I think it's worth looking at, uh, you know, the original American Revolution, um, which was deeply disorganized and was it kind of succeeded in spite of itself. Um, people forget of the insane um, stabbing that was going on only a few years into the revolution. People forget about things like the Conway cabal and Horatio Gates. And uh, I mean, people remember Benedict Arnold and West Point, but they don't remember lots of other intrigue and uh, collapse that was going on during this revolution. People forget uh, how disorganized it all was that really only like three or four states were actually, you know, truly laying down lots of troops were really making the sacrifice. Some of the states, some of the early colonies, uh, or I guess states, basically played no role uh, and uh, kind of had a hands-off approach. They were ambivalent about the whole thing. It was really uh, the South and uh, Massachusetts, and to an extent, New York, that did a lot of the heavy lifting, and uh, which was ironic because New York was one of the most against the revolution to begin with um but it was it was it was nearly a disaster at several points valley forge was a complete disaster most people thought it was over at that stage most of the foreign leadership around the world were under the impression that uh, the colonies would come to some kind of understanding with britain and would have like a peaceful negotiated surrender and some kind of uh agreement or i don't know they didn't really understand uh, that uh, they didn't think that success was likely because it was a mess. And you can look at all of the post revolution, you know, the post 1776 revolution, Shays rebellion, the whiskey rebellion, all of it. You can look at all the problems in early America um, where a lot of this stuff was so poorly planned and so poorly put together. And, that was that was at a time when you actually had a somewhat homogenous, culturally, linguistically, ethnically, religiously homogenous group of people that could kind of reach across the line and help each other. Um, if you you know taking the the population of America in the 1990s and thinking that there's going to be an organized rebellion and like some kind of IRA style, like cell network that's deeply disciplined and, and effective and, and unable to be penetrated. It's just, and willing to, willing to undergo that level of material sacrifice is, uh, is just ridiculous. And I don't think, I think that what really ruins a lot of what Pierce is talking about is because, again, he was writing in the late 70s, which was a pretty black belt time. He, if he had written, if he had waited a few years for everything that Reagan did, if he had waited to the 80s, I think he would have decided that revolution on, the, on that kind of level is extremely unlikely because... It only took a few years for the United States to make a shit, you know, sharp cultural change, sharp economic change, to for the Soviet Union to be revealed as kind of a, a failed state pretending to be some kind of global power. And if he had waited three or four years, I think he probably would have realized that his whole premise was just was bullshit and was not workable. 
Well, I I have I have some comments. First of all, first of all, Pierce Pierce never recanted his revolutionary perspective, and it is my opinion, as the opinion of this humble podcast host, that we are entering a revolutionary period in American history. I I don't doubt that at all. Uh, How that's going to turn out for us is another story. I'm not I'm not here to tell you that it's looking great and that like the great victory is upon us. Uh, Far from it. But we are reaching a point in which people are going to have very few options left. Uh, The system is going to wild out and people who do not have the material resources to weather what is coming are going to be they're going to be like dogs against the wall. And there will be violence in America. And a lot of the things that he depicted are are actually happening Uh, so much. So, I mean, look, the guy like. He he basically has an Epstein character in the book, okay? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't. It's not like is is uh, an in depth prediction as to his ties to Israeli intelligence, et cetera. But there is there is a literal Epstein figure in the book. You have all kinds of humiliations and depredations being committed against the American people, and Pierce had no patience for conservatives. In fact, that's I mean, I think some of the best material in the book consists of his criticism of conservatives um one of my favorite bits uh here we go uh, all in all it has been depressingly easy for the system to deceive and manipulate the american people whether the relatively naive conservatives or the spoiled pseudo intellectual liberals even the libertarians inherently hostile to all governments will be intimidating into going along when big brother announces the new passport system is necessary to root out racists if the freedom-loving american people were the only thing at stake the existence of the organization would hardly be justified americans have lost their right to be free slavery is the just and proper state for people who have grown a soft self-indulgent careless credulous and befuddled as we have indeed we are already slaves we have allowed a diabolically clever alien minority to put the chains on our souls and minds these are spiritual chains are truer mark of slavery than the iron chains which are yet to come there's a lot of good i mean there's a lot of good quotes on conservatives and my my take on conservatives generally i'll throw in here is that honestly they're fucked either way and i take some personal satisfaction in that because the reality is whatever shakes out whether there is some kind of shift and uh, radical elements are able to obtain power on the north american continent or things that continue apace. Either way, when these lackeys of the system have outlived their usefulness, they're they're fucking done. <laughs> so uh, the the whole like he's he saw this this kind of the ebb and flow of American conservative politics, all, going back to the John Birch Society. I mean, you know, he I saw think, these people. I think he had a good cultural go, understanding go of the United States, and he had good predictions. But I the oh, one thing absolutely, and I, I think, think that's the value. I mean, he he actually in he yeah. there's a funny I, there's a funny piece where he accidentally predicted the L.A. riots effectively. He kind of like assumed that sometime around like the early '90s there would be this series of major kind of race riot events in the cities that would shock and horrify people across the country, and the L.A. riots definitely had that effect. I mean, it, it absolutely. He, he horrified people. 
So he, uh, he also right. predicted the more sordid details of anarcho tyranny in a way that Sam Francis never, you know, I mean, he was operating more theoretical perspective on what that would look like. But Pierce really nailed it in so far as basically it's legal for Negroes to go around and rape white women. That's perfectly legal. Uh, having the wrong opinions, that is potentially a, an offense punishable by torture and sodomy. Yeah, I mean, you have people going to jail for, I mean, tw 10, 20 years now for going to the Capitol. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, that aspect of it is, yeah. is correct. And he predicted the conservative reaction to that, too. Yeah. People like, what's his name? What's that? Who's that fucking faggot with the, the dumbass glasses? The, I think he's a Catholic or something. Uh, Ro Ro Rod, uh, Rod Dreher. Not Rod Stewart. Uh, Rod Dreher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah, him going out there and saying these people should be shot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that because that. That's and he had these people's number because that's what the conservative is there to do is to secure their material well-being and to get along with the system and to you know they're going to whine while you have the organization taking a war directly to the system they're denouncing this because what's going to happen and as is the case is the system escalates its actions against the white population generally and they blame the people who are resisting for this rather than the actual occupiers who are doing it. And what I think is most interesting is the fact that there is no white terrorism in America. There is none of this. It doesn't exist. Yet the system behaves as if it does. It is escalated to the point where you would be forgiven for thinking that there was some kind of Aryan insurgency in America because that's how they operate. No, they've, no, it's just propaganda. They have pulled up an entire it's... police state and all the infrastructure. Propaganda, well, it's, it's who they're actually afraid of because they know that when they carry this thing through to where this is going, there will be people who respond. It will probably be too late, but there will be people who respond. Because there are some people, I think particularly Scott Irish people, who refuse to live as slaves. And that was Pierce, by the way. Pierce was a Pierce was a, uh, was Scott Irish. Adam, you had some things you wanted to say. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I've been kind of holding on some of my comments for a while here. So previously, you guys were discussing some of the uh, revolutionary uh, temperatures in the country overall, and I think. Things have definitely changed and ebbed and flowed. I don't think it's a, a linear progression. Uh, and I think it's very interesting. And I, I don't disagree with anything you guys said, uh, but I think it's hard to predict things because we have seen ebbs and flows. I would agree that the overall trend, if you're going to like plot it out like a seasonal chart, the trend has been down. It's been getting colder and we've been clo getting closer to hell. But there are brief periods where things thaw out and you feel like you might get a chance to enjoy a summertime and then it dips back down. But I think historically, to be specific, I think what this book was written in uh, and sort of projecting forward was a linear uh, progression of what was going on in the 70s. That didn't happen because the 80s, the Reagan revolution, the the great conservative majority effectively got a chance to push the problems down the road 
and financialized the economy and actually made the lives of the working class in many ways worse. However, the middle class benefited enough to keep the center together long enough. And then in the 90s, it was sort of weird because this is when Pierce got a lot of public attention. He went on uh, 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace uh, after they blamed him basically for the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, which for the record of the show, at least, uh, is something that I do not think was done, at least solely by Timothy McVeigh, if he wasn't even involved at all. Um, I would recommend listening to a guy named uh, Cody Snodgrass. I'll leave it at that. But he did a really interesting interview with uh, Ole Damagard and James Fetzer uh, about two or three years ago. Uh, and he claimed uh, to be uh, tasked with, uh, that operation and he refused, but he's extremely credible. Uh, if you listen to him, uh, but anyway, uh, who is a German intelligence agent. If you want, we're, we have, uh, this is an aside, but we have collectively agreed a long time ago, mind you, that we, we will not be doing a show on what happened in Oklahoma city. This is as close as you're going to get, uh, Look up Andreas Strassmeyer. Uh, it was a government operation. Please continue, Adam. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely something worth looking into. I think it's it's often overlooked. Uh, but the um, progression towards revolution, I think right now, I think Nick is right. I think things are getting bad. I think it's, it's because there are more people, as opposed to in any time in the past, that are really feeling the pain. Uh, you know, the, the 90s were, were kind of a, a lull. And that's why I thought it was sort of strange that all this uh, militia movement and PACCON stuff was going on because the economy was doing relatively better. The tech boom was sort of lifting all boats. And then the 2000s kind of sucked for everybody. And then it's just kind of gotten worse ever since. So I think the poorer people get and the more widespread that is, there's definitely conditions for revolution. If the system were smart, which they don't appear to be, uh, they would give the share of wealth out a little bit more evenly to quell the masses, but they don't seem to be wanting to do that. They've been very vindictive. They've been calling white people basically domestic terrorists, and they're just fanning the flames, in my opinion. Uh, will it continue? If it continues the way it has been, it, it may very well become much hotter. Uh, if they wise up, maybe it won't. We'll see. But I think white people are inclined to go back to sleep like they did for the past four years if they're given a little bit. And that's all they really need. And if they were smart, they'd boil the frog a little bit slower than they are, in my opinion. Well, you know, I brought Correct. up the Soviet Union. I brought up the Soviet Union and earlier, Pierre, and I just want to say Pierce. my my take on why they created the PatCon stuff after or in the '90s when it was you know everything was going well. Soviet Union is dead. Uh, we have these massive security state agencies. We have these huge bureaucracies. We have all kinds of contractors. We have whole professions and careers that have been whisked out of thin air uh, that were being mostly utilized in you know, anti-communist efforts, anti-Soviet efforts. Um, and we don't want to wind all that down. We might need it. Or, and we don't, want the, we don't want that money to run out, you know, making good money off this. Why don't we, you know, we got to create this new threat. And the threat is both here and everywhere. 
And you see the, you know, really the 90s is, by the way, when the Islamic terrorist racket gets going. And that's when, like, you hear the first rumblings of Osama bin Laden and Clinton is bombing a potassium factory or, or whatever in, in, in Africa trying to kill terrorists. And when you, when, when OKC happened, bombing terror, this was the beginning of it. And I, I agree with right, you that it exactly, was, they had exactly. to keep the security state infrastructure going. However, the, the earlier you mentioned PatCon, what Hans meant by that was, uh, it was a shorthand for Patriot cons- uh, conspiracy or, uh, it, it basically, you could say the. I think we have actually discussed this or mentioned it on the program before, but it was uh, the other side of COINTELPRO, I guess you could say. But the reality was that this stuff being set up to so to you know go after so-called communists, it was all smoke and mirrors to begin with. It was all bullshit because these people already ran the government. You had you had people inside the highest levels of the American government that were allied to foreign powers. And basically uh, read on the inside and hook nose on the outside in most cases. This stuff was always built up for us. It was always meant for us. And they just yeah, they decided and, that and now Pierce, is the time to pivot. And, and Pierce and the Turner Diaries turn into this um, convenient foil for... for for what they're kind of trying to unravel here, which is... Uh, we have this incipient um, threat at home, this threat of white terrorism. And here is the literature that they, uh, that they espouse. And the literature that they espouse predicts that uh, sometimes starting in the 90s, they are going to be launching a global, uh, or at least first national, then global insurrection. And so it all kind of perfectly fits together on the part of the system to use the events of the Turner Diaries because it all, I mean, it kind of lines up in the timeline. And so if you kind of go back and look at the cultural milieu surrounding the Turner Diaries in the 90s, what they often talked about, they often left out, A, that it had been published back in the 70s. And that by the 90s, it was like people knew about it, but it what it wasn't this widespread thing and people looked on it like and framed it as though it had been written recently like it had been written in the 90s because it takes place in the 90s and it was it was perfect soviet union is dead now we have our new angle and we have this perfect piece of literature to frame them on because it's taking place in the now and we can say it's a contemporary work. And so the irony is that, like, I don't know if Pierce understood that by doing, by writing this, he would ironically, you know, start to provoke the system into treating people like they're treated in the novel. Uh, but they effectively do become that. And you can see the historical progression from that meta narrative surrounding OKC all the way through the through like the Tea Party movement during Obama. Uh, I think remember Andrew Breitbart famously like, you know, he said something like, fuck you, you're gonna compare me to to 
McVeigh and all this stuff. Like, you know, this stuff persisted and it's become like a talking point to this day where Pierce and OKC are still used as like this, um, this uh, genesis point for the white terror narrative that takes that starts to be created after the death of the Soviet Union and the death of the supposed death of the, the global it, communist insurgency. It's not just rhetoric, though. The, the fact is, this is the reality that's bubbling under the surface of America. When you come at somebody, you expect them to defend themselves. And what they're doing is laying the groundwork for why defense against the system is illegitimate. You know, it, and it's not, and he talks about, it's, it's a big theme in the book, too, the idea that people are, are bemoaning the actions of the organization because it's making life harder. Well, that's the point. The point, the revolutionary struggle that he's framing is one in which the middle ground is denied. And he and they realized initially it starts out. Like yeah. All of them are like that. Everyone yes, gets yeah, angry it's, it's about the halfway. Classic point. revolutionary model. Classic revolutionary model where you force a situation where you have to pick a side. And in, in one of the uh, plot points in the book, basically, they initially are just taking trying to take out system targets, assassinating journalists and uh, basically high profile regime figures. And they realize that uh, while this is causing the system to go into panic and start instituting more repressive measures against the American people, which is uh, at least in the revolutionary model is, is good. It's still not enough. Because, unfortunately, the American people are at the point in which they will do with very little as long as they get some crumbs from the table. And so the strategy has to pivot to all-out warfare against America itself, namely taking out uh, supply networks, uh, power plants, etc., and just make life unlivable for the average person. Uh, and that's basically the idea is that we're headed for annihilation and you want to, ex it, it's, it's, it is a classic model. You want to accelerate that timetable and you get these people to drop their masks. And what I found interesting revisiting the book, I've read this book several times over the years, uh, revisiting it recently, what I thought was very interesting was the extent to which the mask dropping in uh, recent, and I don't, I admit, I don't really like to talk about contemporary politics too much, but it's a little just too on the nose lately. Namely, these people have just absolutely dropped the mask and there was nothing that anyone needed to do it. Like you had just a couple like aimless people wander into a federal building and these people are coming out and calling for basically mass executions. I mean, I, I, I bet maybe that's a bit hyperbolic. In that they have still exercised some measure of restraint because, you know, to your well, average not, person, not only that, still... not only that, man, they, they so the this is something that it, it does go into, I think, in the, in the novel and other things that Pierce had written over the years. He kind of in the broader Pierce works, um, he always uh, talked about how inevitably they would need to start. Um, monitoring everyone because the the system would face this and a lot of other people by the way have made this prediction 
people on all kinds of the ideological spectrum from all backgrounds who are honest have made this prediction. Even people who've worked in the deep state, if you want to call it that, um, have made this prediction. Russ Tice, for example, has hammered this home that inevitably they are going to need to find a way to monitor everyone. And what you've been hearing recently is this talk of a new domestic security bill, which is basically a rhetorical uh, circumvention of saying the obvious, which is new Patriot Act. Because the Patriot Act has been kind of rightly tarnished as a, you know, a severe violation of, of uh, your dignity and your privacy and a severe level of overreach and a massive expansion of the federal government and the, the contractor sphere and all of that. Billions wasted and everyone hates it. Okay, everyone, it, it's rightly regarded as... Uh, one of the biggest post 9-11 screw-ups. And they don't want to say, we need a new Patriot Act. So they'll say, we need a new domestic security bill. And that is the system kind of really taking the mask off, where they are outright saying, we need to have a sort of pre-crime determination matrix. We need to have what this they're saying is we, for hate speech. we you know, need we to need protect. To, yes, we must protect us against you, America. Exactly. And, and it's you know, I don't in your know face, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it, at least through legal forms. Yeah, and I I think that um, the recent militarization of um, of Washington, D.C., with uh, several thousand active-duty troops, uh, heavy equipment, barricades, artillery positions, flyovers, intelligence units, chemical warfare units, biological warfare units. All, I mean, you know, they've it really brought out the works. They've turned D.C. into, you know, 2004 Baghdad, just like that. Or it looks well, like Kabul. And yeah, the green you know, zone and the, yeah, this, the green, zone. you know, this is uh, something else Pierce hit really well that we see recently is uh, following the events that took place on, uh, was it January 6th? You had a lot of talk, for, a lot of system chatter about having to go through the military forces and uh, check for ideological compliance to the, you know, to Zoc. Exactly. Right? Going through and, and vetting who can be relied on. This was a huge thing in the Turner Diaries. Uh, and it, it was along very clear racial lines. And the <laughs> eventually what ends up happening, obviously, in the, in the book is that, you know, firefights start breaking out of military bases across the country and stuff. Uh, this was maybe more realistic, though, again, back in the Cold War. Like, it now is well, I mean, it's whatever. Totally, like, it's I, I don't know what now. they really have to I don't fear. know. I don't know if you heard, but um, the military has issued a stand-down order within yeah. 60 days. 60 days. Events. Isn't that crazy? And and um, on top of that, um, uh, there, was a, there was a recent interview, uh, some kind of interview with um, 
General McChrystal, who's um, a real piece of shit. And this guy, um, after January 6th, he came out and said, well, we need to understand what motivated the events. This man was a high-ranking general in charge of major military operations who still commands a lot of respect. He's in charge of something with some like former DARPA initiative currently, some kind of domestic propaganda thing. Um, he, you know, he said what motivated all of this was white terrorism and white people not understanding that they've lost their prominence in society and not being able to deal with their, okay. their, you know, their, their lack of privilege and immediately I, I, after I, we, we have to talk about this in detail yeah well immediately after McChrystal said that you see this narrative come out of the the new defense department which is we have to have a stand down order because we need to check for signs of ideological extremism across the entire military and so yep. again so what's going on here they're they're offering a bone to the people who are to mass man they're trying to say that there is some place in the system for you america because the problem that they have with the the whole orange phenomenon and all of that is that normal people got a little too much of a taste for what it might be like to have someone who is actually appealing to their interests real or not whatever we're not getting into that but the fact of the matter is that people have seen the face of the enemy so I heard an interesting take on what was going on with the deployment of, at one point, I think up to 25,000 National Guard troops in the Capitol uh, after the uh, January 6th event, the non-event in my opinion. Um, Matt Bracken, he's the guy who used to be at Western Rifle Shooters dot uh, WordPress dot com, who was banned uh, right before the election. Of course, uh, he occasionally will go on Infowars, and but he has a gab now. Uh, his take, because he's a, I think he's an ex Marine. He's definitely ex military uh, and a decent guy uh, overall. I'd endorse uh, most of his stuff. He he said that was. Not just a loyalty test of the individuals, but a loyalty test of the governors, because the National Guardsmen are under the immediate jurisdiction, at least, of the states from which they come. And there was a potential that some of those governors would just say, you know what, we don't we don't endorse whatever it is you guys are doing with the militarization of this country. Uh, and we're not going to send our troops. If that had happened, those people would be on a list. And I don't know enough about the, the true background of this uh, DeSantis character in Florida, but you kind of get the impression, at least in the press, that that's the type of guy they're trying to rein in at the very least identify. And I I don't know, again, if this is a true story, but there was a recent uh, claim that Biden called um, Governor DeSantis in Florida and DeSantis was arguing with him about COVID or something. And uh, he probably just said, Joe. uh, And uh, Biden said, you will call me as uh, President Biden or Mr. President. And the claim goes that DeSantis says, no, I won't. You can go fuck yourself. 
Um, clearly, that's, that's not the type of governor they want in the country. Uh, and so I think that was a very interesting take. I disagree. That- I don't follow politics. And I disagree just from hearing you say that. Uh, disagree with what? To me, my immediate reaction to that is it is. I think it's. I think that that sounds to me like a classic op. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that particular quote, I'm not putting a whole lot of credence to. But what I'm saying mainly was the 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 notion of for the patriots. Yeah, that's fucking crumbs for retards who believe in this. Okay, all right, all right. That wasn't my main Uh, point, though. That wasn't my main point. Let's not let's not distract. Let's not distract. I mean to step on you, Adam. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, it brings to the um, there's an interesting figure in in Pierce's novel uh, who happens. I I also have some kind of criticism. I won't get into the like nitty gritty of California itself. Uh, I would like to discuss the interesting fact that California is the first liberated zone in America. Uh, maybe we can get to that. Maybe we'll forget to get to that. But there was a basically there's this general in Northern California who they kind of let do his own thing. And he's one of these like constitution types. And he was prattling on about how we're going to restore the republic or whatever. And so eventually, of course, he has to be assassinated because he's just worthless scum uh, who's talking a bunch of nonsense. I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not calling for the assassination of any american politicians by the way i'm just i'm just pointing out that uh you know uh some people who seem to have nominal disagreements with zog ultimately their purpose is to serve zog by disagreeing pretty elementary point i should say i mean i think people should be past this but maybe they're not so what else what else do we have to say about the turner diaries nick Oh, I, I have plenty to say, um, or at least I, I could talk about the heart of it, of what I think is really important. Uh, I just didn't want to cut off, and it sounded like you had a few more points to make. Adam, did you oh, have other you wanted to make? Nothing in particular. I can just sort of shoot off what I had left, um, and then you can take it away. Uh, I, I'm I'm perennially fascinated by William Pierce. I, I He's clearly... A very intelligent guy and i i appreciate his unwillingness to suffer fools and i just i always go back to that interview he did on 60 minutes because um you know mike wallace unlike his shadow of a son chris wallace wasn't stupid uh and he was playing his typical tricks you know just trying to trying to paint the context in a very um particular way that he, he had an agenda and he was trying to push that agenda. Uh, and he's, he's sort of subtle about it to certain people, but to Pierce, he just wasn't having any of it. But I thought the personalities in particular were, were very interesting because I don't usually use this word, but I'm just going to call Pierce's brain. It was a, it's a very Aryan brain. It's, it's very Greek as opposed to the Oriental brain of Mike Wallace. I mean, the guy, he's a physicist. He thinks in terms of step-by-step instructions, we're going to engineer a plan. We're going to build this and that, and this input creates this output. Isn't it obvious that this is what we're talking about? Wallace does not live 
in the same world. He, he lives in the world of win and lose. And a lot of that has to do with distortion of the truth. And I think this is at the crux of what's going on in the society where we have these two very different brain patterns that are just not compatible. And it takes a certain intelligence to really see through the propaganda, but it also takes a certain personality and level of courage to actually call it out. Yeah, exactly. And I know a lot of smart people that notice it, but they don't have the courage to call it out. And so I've always wondered like, what was really why he, he was this man that chose to do this. There's, and he had a promising career in front of him, but he chose the truth, I suppose, over well, there's a book, material game. If, if anyone's really interested, there's a book uh, written uh, by a professor named Griffin or Griffith. It's called The Fame of a Dead Man's Deeds. It's a sort of a portrait biography of Pierce. Adam, I think that you have a very good assessment of him. I think that you said earlier that he's a man who exists solely in the realm of truth and reality. And Pierce one thing that he was he identifies and he has he's been maybe criticized and he's even kind of directed himself that it's an unfortunate thing when you have to look at at men even white men as herd animals as almost mechanical flesh machines but unfortunately that's the reality because the problem that you have is that very few people are able to take an abstraction to take for example let's say that kid who was murdered uh, the white kid who was murdered by some some feral negro. We talked about this briefly. I think I might have um, who Cannon said, Hinnant uh, the the, said the or... gamer word in description of it. Yes, correct. Okay, so it takes a certain type of person who are able to look at an abstraction like that. And by abstraction, I mean something that happens far away. It doesn't happen in your community, and come to a more serious-minded conclusion about what that means for the situation overall, start projecting forward into the future and start looking at the raw reality of what we're living under, which is a terror state. Most people are still able to go about their lives, and that's exactly the problem. You know, no American deserves comfort is the reality, and this is, this is the perspective that Pierce to the table in the Turner Diaries. No American deserves comfort. No American deserves peace of mind because ultimately we are all responsible for this situation. We're responsible by not acting. And on that point, uh, I think it's a long, maybe uh, I'll do my best to know when to cut it off, but I would like to read my favorite uh, part of the Turner Diaries. Namely, it's at the end of the book and uh, before I do, I, I'll say what it, why it is something that means to me a, a good bit. Namely, that what we said about his ability to both see the facts and have the courage to say it is is really just the exact point and why I think this is still relevant and why I think that Pierce has a legacy which will endure uh, because he he had those exact qualities and the reality is especially coming from that generation people born in the 1930s i mean even after that but especially then they have no real excuse to have any other (laughs) to come at this any other way you know i think that a lot of young people i know that there probably are some young people who listen to this program and 
I guess we're we're all still young men, but uh, we're aging quickly. And I don't mean necessarily by time standards as much as, you know, it, this has all gone by so fast. And I think that young people, maybe they didn't quite understand because they where they grow up. Maybe they think that uh, it's just a matter of ignorance. And the first point is, is, of course, that ignorance is not exactly an excuse, because if you have a mind to begin with, then you have a more responsibility to use it. Okay. But that being said, people know the score, man. Like if you actually talk to people, they know the score. They just don't care because they have money. They have the ability to insulate themselves from the consequences. This is how it all began when they started busting the coloreds into white neighborhoods. When this whole thing started you know, up in the cities, it's because people thought, well, it's happening somewhere else. And they, they weren't able, they didn't have the courage or the strength of mind in general to look at it and see where this will end up, to see where, what it meant for their children, for their grandchildren, for the future of their race. It doesn't occur to them. And the only way to deal with these types of people is forced. They have to be forced to. That's it. And you have to deny all forms of middle ground. And again, I hate to do this, just but you know, I, I get like I'm on a, I'm here with my friends, and like I don't, I don't want anyone to get in trouble. This is I'm not advocating for any any particular look. Just stay out of trouble. Try to survive. Come on, like it's not going to be us that are going to tell you which way or the other to do and what to do. It's that's not our job. You can figure that out yourself okay but i will read uh, i hope that wasn't too long of a ramble and i i hope this isn't too long of a ramble but i'm going to i'm going to read from the end of the turner diaries <clears throat> the majority of these poor creatures were white and i overheard one of our members refer to what happened to them as a slaughter of the innocents i am not sure that this is a correct description of the recent holocaust and mind you at the end of the book like several american cities go up in like nuclear hellfire okay both because the organization itself is detonating nuclear warheads and because they provoke a conflict with the soviet union which is detonating uh, launching every payload they have and zog itself is everything is going to shit and like millions of people are being slaughtered right okay this is the context of you haven't read the book I am sorry, of course, for the millions of white people, both here and in Russia, who died and who have yet to die before we have finished in this war to rid ourselves of the Jewish yoke. But innocence? I think not. Certainly that term should not be applied to the majority of the adults. After all, is not a man essentially responsible for his condition, at least in a collective sense? If the white nations of the world had not allowed themselves to become subject to the Jew, to Jewish ideas, to the Jewish spirit, this war would not be necessary. We can hardly consider ourselves blameless. We can hardly say that we had no choice, no chance to avoid the Jews' snare. We can hardly say that we were not warned. Men of wisdom, integrity, and courage have warned us over and over again of the consequences of our folly. And even after we were well down the Jewish primrose path, we had chance after chance to save ourselves. Most recently, 52 years ago, when the Germans and the Jews were locked in the struggle for mastery of the Central and Eastern Europe, 
we ended up on the Jewish side in that struggle, primarily because we had chosen corrupt men as our leaders, and we had chosen corrupt leaders because we valued the wrong things in life. We had chosen leaders who promised us something for nothing, who pandered to our weaknesses and vices, who had nice stage personalities and pleasant smiles, and who were without character or scruple. We ignored the really important issues in our national life and gave free reign to a criminal system to conduct the affairs of our nation as it saw fit, so long as it kept us moderately well supplied with bread and circuses. And are not folly, willful ignorance, laziness, greed, irresponsibility, and moral timidity as blameworthy as the most deliberate malice? Are not all our sins of omission to be counted against us as heavily as the Jews' sins of commission against him? In the Creator's account book, that is the way things are reckoned. Nature does not accept good excuses in lieu of performance. No race which neglects to ensure its own survival when the means for that survival at hand can be judged innocent. Nor can the penalty exacted against it be considered unjust no matter how severe. End quote. I have a few thoughts, but... Would you guys like to comment on that? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I've, 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 I've wondered that's, that's about... Yeah, I've wondered about... Again, William Pierce. He wrote this quite a while ago. And he... I think he passed away in 2002. And since the publication of the book... And prior to the publication of the book, I should say, he had a pretty long track record of being involved in what I suppose we'd call white nationalist politics in America. Uh, Nick, you're very familiar with this stuff, so clarify if I'm wrong, but he was a member of uh, Lincoln Rockwell's group for a while. Uh, He ran into Harold Covington at some point. Uh, I I don't remember all of the the characters that he ran into, but he he was fairly well known. And after the, the book came out, it seemed to me that he was trying to kind of go his own way. Uh, I don't know really what he was up to in the early 80s, probably just writing more. Uh, but I think by the time of the 90s, he was pretty well established in West Virginia with that uh, church, uh, which was basically a tax shelter as far as I could tell. But it was... Yeah, cosmotheism. Yeah. 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 I don't care. I mean, that's fine. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's countless organizations like the SPLC that try to do the same thing that are infinitely more hypocritical. Um, but the uh yeah, Southern poverty, yeah, that's really their focus. Uh anyway, that's an aside. But his his choice of women also makes me just kind of think a little bit like, okay, was he doing this kind of just to create like a cult of personality for himself? Was he trying to create an organization? Because on the, on the, on the last analysis, he didn't really succeed in creating an organization because the thing kind of fell apart when he died. Uh, he had a legacy for sure. And I'm, I'm definitely appreciative and, and respectful of a lot of his intellectual output for sure. And a very charismatic man at that. But what was his real end goal with himself with in this sort of near term 
ground level logistics of what he was trying to do. Did he really think that he was going to pull off some kind of uh, organizational uh, coup against the U.S. government? I mean, I I don't quite get what his no, realistic he, expectations uh, I can were. Tell you it, so what he thought, I can I can answer that question. Yeah, 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 he, please. What his vision for National Alliance was? And yes, yeah, and like yes, National Alliance went to shit after he died. Uh, everyone is that. At least everyone who knows anything about this stuff, they know that. Um, there's also I, I'm not going to get into whether or not he was he was murdered or whatever. Um, I will say about when it comes to women, I can tell you what he said. He said that uh, like because he had a long term marriage uh, that began with uh, I believe his first wife was a mathematician that he yeah. Had. Yeah, in the early days in the 60s and he's married, married a long time it's a classic American marriage you know when much, he was so. kind of a normal establishment approved person by the way. one of yeah. his sons went into uh, one of his one sons went into aerospace engineering the other uh, was became a computer engineer had like yeah. a, a degree in music yeah um, he doesn't I don't think he really maintained contact much with them I know that that basically it's one of those things that falls into really not people's business but he was a he was a man he wasn't somebody who was as we're finding now like people like him are going to be shut out altogether like mm -hmm. if you're gifted in that kind of way if you're maybe technically minded uh, very bright person uh, you're if you don't if you're not willing to basically debase yourself you're not going to get into any real position of uh, academia the, there was happen. a hil hilarious like account game and try to lie your way in or something well his yeah he his very close uh, let me finish go ahead quick. go ahead he, he was very he he could have been a tenured professor um he was he absolutely was a, a associate professor and it was it was not and he was on a very quick track by the way he he got that post very quickly uh, he could have he could have done exactly what the people that he criticized most, which are the system compromisers. Those are the people who get most of his um, his his contempt. Uh, these people who want to play along and just get their piece of the pie while yeah. the whole thing goes to shit. Uh, he could have done that. He chose not to. So, like, if people want to come at Pierce with those kind of, you see a lot of those types of attack that people who end up more or less where we are that oh well um they're better you can make it or something in the system and blah 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 well that's not true for pierce and i think that that's a disingenuous attack to begin with because i think that your average person should be able to succeed just fine in a normal healthy society <laughs> which we yes <laughs> but, uh, oh god on. yeah um no i actually that reminds me i think there's he has some in common with uh, Ted Kaczynski, who's probably even more brilliant than uh, than Pierce, to, if we're going to be honest. But I think um, I think what also characterized well, yeah, he was brilliant to the point of being totally dysfunctional. Well, the sad thing about that is when you're that bright, if Pierce was also you, not the the subject of severe psychological trauma. No, but I mean, part of it. Well, that was the the MK Ultra side. I, what I was just trying to say was that. When someone is that exceptionally bright, they they're so lonely because it's it's sort of like you you're you're air you're airdropped into the heart of Africa and you're surrounded by a bunch of pygmy villagers who have not invented the wheel, who have no written language, and 
you have absolutely nothing in common with them. You are absolutely isolated. You have nothing interesting to learn from these people. And you become just up in your head all the time because that's the only place that's interesting. And it's tragic. And it's, it's why men in particular who have very extreme distributions of intelligence wind up being the movers and shakers of society because they're the exceptions to the norm. They go outside the boundaries. And when you go so far outside the the standard distribution of what normal bell curve dis, uh, intelligence is, no one understands what you're talking about. And you just, you, you get into this horrible place where you're, you're second guessing yourself, I think a lot, but, um, that aside, uh, what I was just uh, going to say about Pierce was, I think, a little bit different than Kaczynski was. I think he he was definitely intelligent, but he, he still thought, maybe perhaps naively, but I, I shouldn't be so harsh. I, I think he, he was not naive. He just, he was trying his best to to still convince Again, sort of like the libertarian, you know, if I can only convince someone, you know, of the uh, wonders of vouchers, you know, suddenly we'll reform the education system. It's a little bit unrealistic, I, th I think, but he was still trying and I appreciate that. And we always have to try uh, to get people to see the truth or the light. And I think the, the funny example I was thinking of was, according to uh, Wikipedia, at least, he uh, he bought some shares of uh, McDonnell Douglas once and he went to the yeah, he, shareholder meeting. He tried to get them to stop selling weapons to the Zionist state. Isn't that, yeah, isn't was, that uh, just McDonald's hilarious? Yeah, he, like, like they're going to listen to some crank yeah, who owns a hundred shares. 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 I mean, it's like, you know. yeah. <laughs> it was McDonald Douglas. He bought shares. This was during the, um, I, I think it was the, Seven, Yom Kippur three, or something well, no, or whatever. Geez, it would have been, yeah, it was the young yeah, Yom Kippur. Um, yeah, he bought shares solely to <laughs> go to the college uh, meeting and and ask and demand that they stop selling arms to the Zionist state. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just so funny. Yeah, I mean, it, hilarious. But uh, you know, in his defense, like this is the only but, way. This is before Twitter. Like you couldn't like social media bomb people and and social shame them like that. You could not communicate with anyone back then other than means like literally standing in the east side of D.C. handing out flyers to Negroes. I mean, you had to do this stuff this, and you had to like I'm going to there was a um, what's his name? Uh, I don't think it was Bob Whitaker, but the guy who died recently um, who got thrown in jail for having a, a voicemail recording or something. Uh, he used to uh, tell people you had to you had to time and oh, i think this is actually no I'm, I'm mixing people up but um he was uh, the member of the order uh he went to jail was it lane i think i think he was the guy who wrote out a series of recommendations for people back in the 90s in the talk radio days or maybe the 80s and 90s the talk radio days where you could not get through the call screeners unless you kind of gave them kind of what the host wanted to and I actually did this once and it's true the, the screeners are ridiculous and they'll hang up on you if you don't have the exact topic they want um and you so see you basically have to lie and then when as soon as you get on the air because it was so hard to do that back then and fcc controlled everything and they had a, a dump button in case you said something wrong you had to basically very cleverly design your rhetoric, sort of like what the Groypers did uh, on some of those like Ben Shapiro and uh, Charlie Kirk college tours. It was like that. And, and I appreciate that that level of uh, ingenuity. Um, but 
I don't know. It, it just, it, <laughs> it doesn't add up to much, unfortunately. And we're dealing with people who have control of trillions of dollars and massive propaganda machines. And it, it just still makes me wonder, you know, what is the best strategy if, if not, you know, playing it a little bit closer to the vest. So that's all I wanted to say. Your best strategy is forced. And the, to answer your question, uh, what Pierce, like what he had hoped, as I understand it, for the National Alliance was just a formal organization that could basically screen people who were of good quality and establish basically a hierarchical society that would be able to exist when Zog basically destroys itself. Something would be there. Uh, and it, you know, it's not like. I'm not going to, I wasn't there in those times and I don't, I'm not going to like trash anybody who was involved with that back when Pierce was, was alive. Uh, that's not my place to do that. I will just say that I, in the final analysis, what I personally view as Pierce's contribution was a very precise moral clarity to the situation. That, in the final analysis, is, is what I respect Pierce most for. And the Turner Diaries is a, don't say what you want as like, you know, put on your fucking literary critic hat, whatever. I don't, I don't give a shit. Like, the point is, he called it and he saw it, and he laid out, you know, whether the scenarios depicted are realistic or not. I think we've all kind of come down on the fact that, yeah, that's probably not how it ever was or ever will shake out. And Pearson himself thought that it was an unrealistic depiction. He said as much. And that's why uh, Hunter was produced, actually. But that being said, it's he had his finger on the right problem. And he forced you, if you take his stuff seriously, it's, it's, what he's doing is taking America seriously. He's taking the situation seriously in a way that people who just talk and talk and talk play games and ask for fucking money or whatever, you know, they're bullshitters, man. And I'm not going to attack anybody in particular. I'm just going to say that, you know, if you can read what Pierce wrote and if you can get it, like if you can really get it and get what he, who he was trying to speak to. And it's not, man, it's not like, it's not, I think that our enemies have this fantasy thing. Like we're a bunch of like sadists, like, psychopath types or something who just want to live cruelty on people and it's just not the case the whole point of it is that like this shouldn't have ever come to this we should never have been forced with these kinds of decisions with these kinds of outcomes with what would be asked of us collectively speaking what would be needed to be done to fix this it's not pretty, man, and it's not anything that anyone would want to talk about years after if it ever came to pass that way. Um, you know, I uh, I just think, and I think that Pierce would say as much, that the alternative is worse. Almost heaven, West Virginia Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old there, older than the trees. 
Younger than the mountains Growing like a breeze Country roads Take me home To the place I belong West Virginia Yesterday 